So if you flip over in the book of Ruth with me uh, to Ruth chapter 1, we're just going to read the first six verses, but I'm going to be summarizing the book of Ruth sort of throughout the sermon because uh, it's a short story. Uh, It's only like two pages in your Bible, but we'll start off with just the first six verses. Uh, So with that in mind, friend, let's hear God's word to us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated? Let's pray together. Keep that Bible open in front of you to Ruth. Uh, Father, we pray that we would glean everything in the harvest of your word today, that we would leave uh, nothing behind, but that we would be equipped for every good deed. Lord, that we would become who we were meant to be, and our congregation would be the community of Christ that you have called us to be. In the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. So do you know who you are? Do you ever find yourself wondering, who am I? And uh, that question is very intimately linked, not just with who am I, but like, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) Like, not just like, I know I'm going to wake up and like brush my teeth and go things, but like, why do all of these things in my life, why do they happen? What is their meaning? You know, who am I and what am I supposed to do with my life? Uh, Well, that question uh, is probably even more pronounced in light of the past year and a half, right, Uh, where many of us can't do work like normal, and we're unsure sort of what the future holds, and maybe we're rethinking our family, and our family dynamics have changed, and our work dynamics have changed, and our church dynamics have changed, and our neighborhood dynamics have changed. Uh, So it may be a time of upheaval and uncertainty. We're really wondering, like, Lord, what are you doing, and what am I supposed to do? And, like, who am I? Uh, Well, those are all very, very similar questions uh, that Naomi, the first uh, main character we see in the book of Ruth, is asking, all right? She's questioning who she is so much that at one point in the book of Ruth, she actually says she should take on a new name. Uh, When she comes back home, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt me a bitter hand in life. My life has not gone the way that I wanted it to. So uh, with that in mind, I want you to look down uh, with me at the book of Ruth in chapter 1. And I want to see how the book of Ruth is not just going to unpack how we are supposed to live in this life, but really it gives us um, exemplars, people whose lives we should embody that can be a guide for how you are actually supposed to live and what you are called to be and to do. Right, so look down there with me at Ruth, verse 1, in chapter 1, right, that first sentence. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went out to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his family. 
So right there, uh, the time of the Judges. Uh, who was here last Sunday? We went through the book of Judges, right? The prevailing idea of the book of Judges is during the time of Judges, everybody does what is right in their own eyes, right? That's what's, it, it is a sort of Wild West lawless time where everyone's deciding what's true or what's right, and everyone's just doing what's right in their own eyes, right? So this is a time when women would be abused and mistreated. This is a time when there would be deep injustice in this land. And people are supposed to see not only, sure, we need government, we, need, you know, we do need a Davidic king, a king from the line of David one day. That's part of the argument of the book of Judges. But really, the big argument from last week is, who do we really need as king? Who, who, who does every person in Israel need to see as their ultimate king? You remember? It's God. God is meant to be king. And when God is your king and you follow his statutes and laws, that's what society and life or whatever you want to call it needs. We need to see God as king, right? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I argued last week that who is supposed to be king? God is supposed to be seen as everyone's king. And the reason I bring all this up is if you look down at verse 2, what's the name of the husband of Naomi? What's his name? Elimelech. All right, so, let me, so this isn't a Hebrew lecture, but let me just break this down, and then you'll feel a little bit better about reading God's word. Eli Melech is a slowed-down version of what we would say Elimelech. But Eli Melech, in Hebrew, if you break it down, El, E-L, means what? Anybody know? God. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, right? You know, we all know those songs, right? Elohim, we've heard El, right? Does no one know that song? No one knows that song? You know it. It just didn't sound very good. <laughs> right? So El means God. The letter I means my. So Eli means what? My God. Melech is the Hebrew word for king. So what's the name of the guy living in the time of Judges? What's his name? My God is king, right? So remember last week I suggested to you everybody's supposed to see God as their ultimate authority. That's who they follow. That's the law of their heart and of their lives is God is their king. And now in the time of Judges, when everybody's just doing what's sort of right in their own eyes, there's a man named My God is King. But how does this guy, you know, sort of, uh, lead his family. What's going on? Well, uh, you know, if you notice, Eli Melech, my God is king, and his wife Pleasant, they leave with their two sons, and they uh, go to the country of Moab, which is a very interesting decision to make. And it's because there's a famine in the land, right? So they leave the promised land, and they go to this far-off country, to the land of Moab. But they go there because there's a famine that year. But how long do they end up staying in Moab? They were supposed to just go during harvest. It was supposed to only be this, time, this short a time away from the promised land. How long did they end up staying there? Well, eventually, they stay there 10 years. And when they get to Moab, although it's only supposed to be a short stay, it ends up being extended much further than that. And then what happens when they leave the promised land? Well, it's maybe a questionable decision. The text doesn't really say it, but it's like, hmm, any Jewish reader would have thought that's an interesting decision to leave the promised land considering everything in the Torah has been all about we need to get into the promised land. Trouble comes, and what do they do? They withdraw from the promised land, and they go to the country of Moab where they serve Chemosh, a different god. They don't serve the god of the Bible. They don't serve Yahweh. They serve different gods in Moab. And then they don't just stay for a little while, they stay for a long time. 
And then what's the result of that? Well, then, unfortunately, in this story, what happens to Naomi's husband is he dies. And so then she's left with her two sons, and then they marry Moabite women, who the God's people are not supposed to marry women who are from other tribes that worship other gods. And so now uh, you can kind of see the compounding effect of that one decision to leave the promised land. This was going to be short-term, now it's long-term. Then my husband's dead. And then, of course, what happens to her two sons? They marry uh, non-God-worshipping um, women. And then what happens to her two sons? Then they die. And now we are left with Naomi all by herself, far from home, without any man to protect her. And that may sound, you know, I don't know, chauvinist, but that's the ancient world. You needed, you know, men to protect you. Because remember, this is the time of the what? The judges, when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and there aren't police officers, right? So these women, so the women are incredibly vulnerable. And what happens is, uh, you know, Naomi looks at her two Moabite daughters-in-law, and she sums it up, and she says, well, you're probably best off going back to Moab and, you know, serving Chemosh or whoever your God is, because let's face it, you know, I've got nothing for you. But then we are introduced to the main character in the story, right, Ruth. And Ruth famously says those words, right? Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Apparently, something about Naomi's faith in the one true God and her resilient faith, no matter what she faced and all the tragedy that struck her, something was so beautiful to Ruth that she knew she would rather risk life away from her land of Moab with only another woman serving the one true God. Something was so beautiful about Naomi's faith that Ruth said, I don't know what it is, but your God is the true God, and I am going to be loyal to you. So where you go, I go. And of course, Orpah leaves back for Moab, the other daughter-in-law. And that, of course, introduces us to, you know, sort of Ruth chapter 2. And so we have Naomi and we have Ruth, these two very vulnerable women. They sort of come back to their hometown of Bethlehem. Anybody ever moved away from home and then come back? Ever known that awkward feeling? Well, they come back, and that's where Naomi says, look, guys, I left, but don't call me Naomi anymore because my life has just gone sideways. It's just gone sideways, and everybody knows it. <laughs> everybody knows it, right? Anybody here ever you know, made like a questionable decision or two in your life? And then the result of that compounds into even worse things? You know, this is like that principle we're always trying to plead with our friends and our kids about, which is our decisions in life, um, you know, they don't go like this. They're not on like a steady incline, you know, and they don't go like steadily worse. You know, our, our actions are almost like a hockey stick. You know, a hockey, you know, a hockey stick is shaped, it goes like this, what? like that. And so this is what we're constantly warning our kids and our friends and our loved ones with, is when we make bad decisions, it's like, maybe it's okay for a little while, and then all of a sudden, it exponentially gets worse. But that's also the beautiful thing about, like, doing righteous deeds, right? Like, when you come to Christ, yeah, maybe it doesn't change overnight, but then all of a sudden, God's goodness is even more real to you, and you want more and more of Christ, right? It's that principle of compounding interest, right? And so I think that, that very much summarizes Naomi's life. You know, they're going along. They make this decision to move to Moab. They think it's going to be short-term. And then before she knows it, her husband's dead, and so are her sons. She's got no heirs, no land, and very little hope. No wonder, right, she wants to have them call her a different name, right? 
So what happens in Ruth chapter 2 then? Uh, Ruth and Naomi are living in Bethlehem and Ruth needs some food. And thankfully, because Leviticus 19, which you'll read in the co-op tomorrow morning if you join us, Leviticus 19, in those boring sections of the Bible, right? God actually tells his people in the Old Testament that when they glean a field, when they get a harvest, they're supposed to leave what behind? Anybody know? They're supposed to leave some behind. They're not supposed to squeeze every inch of productivity out of their field because they are always supposed to remember the poor. And so you are not entitled to all of your produce. The Lord takes 10% of your produce, and the poor have a claim to your harvest as well. You are not to glean every inch of it. Interesting Old Testament law, isn't it? That the poor have a claim to us. It reminds me of uh, when Romans says we should be in debt to no one except the debt of love. You know, uh, we are, we are, ideally we would all be living debt-free, Right? But actually, as Christians, we always live in debt because we owe a debt of love to other people. Just like in the Old Testament, they owed a debt of love specifically to the poor, the widows, and the sojourners, people from a different ethnic group that didn't sound or talk or worship like us. They were sojourners. And so God's people in Leviticus 19 were supposed to remember that at one point they were sojourners, and they depended on other people to be generous. Right, And so uh, Ruth goes out into a field and she asks permission. She says, can I please glean the leftovers that you know, uh, your law says that I'm entitled to? And the owner of the field is this guy named Boaz. And he sees this young woman working and she's working very, very hard. And so he comes up to her and he says, hey, I've heard about your love of the Lord. I've heard about how faithful you are to your mother-in-law. And I want you to know that you can get all the food you need from my field and hang out with my workers because if you go off by yourself, you're going to be assaulted and someone's going to do something terrible to you. And I want to protect you. And I want to show you generosity, right? Remember, this is the time of the judges when everybody does what's right in their own eyes, right? So we have this godly man, right, who encourages this sojourner of a woman who has come to faith in the true God And then, of course, chapter 3, you know, it becomes sort of that Jack and Diane, Jim and Pam from the office. Will they or won't they? Who's going to make the first move? Who's going to kiss first? And who makes the first move? Like every good romance, the (laughs) mother-in-law. Naomi says, hey, guys, I don't know if you understand this, but you're single and he's single. And so Naomi comes along with Ruth and she says, take a bath, put on some good smelling perfume and go see if he wants to marry you. And chapter three, guess what? Boaz gets the message. And then Boaz says, I I will settle this by tomorrow. Don't you worry. If I can marry you, I'm going to. I'm gonna redeem your family's land and I'm gonna become your husband. If if it's within my power, I'm gonna do it. And then like all good future sons-in-laws, he says, and before you go back to your mother-in-law to tell her, I said, yes, here, take a bunch of food and give it to her, right? Because he knows he's not just marrying her, he's marrying into the family, right? So uh, chapter four, of course, Boaz marries Ruth, and then God graciously gives Ruth her first child, and they name him Obed. And, you know, beautiful story, right? Um, I love at the end of the story that the community of Bethlehem never, ever calls Naomi Mara. 
Instead, they say, hey, Naomi, the Lord has given you a son. You know, she came back and said, I'm broken. I'm nothing. Call me bitter. And they're like, "Mm, we're not going to call you that. But we will call you Naomi because that's who you are. And God has been good to you. And you are right to come back. And then if that's not beautiful enough, the real point of Ruth, the ending right there, of course, is that this Obed baby, he is the father of Jesse, who's the father of David. And so we see a pointing at the end of Ruth that this is all building us up to see King David, the greatest king of God's people. And we know as Christians that King David is really pointing us to whom? To Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of David, the God who became human, who became king, right? All of this story is all wrapped up into the whole story of God's steadfast love, right? Do you see how this is all pointing to Jesus Christ? So uh, what then are we supposed to do with this beautiful story, right? Well, you know, if you read the, uh, if you go through the weekly Bible reading plan, the co-op this week, uh, you'll, we'll read Leviticus 19 and then we'll read through Ruth. Um, but I guess what I want to do this morning is I want to give you um, sort of four perspectives or vignettes on how we can understand this story. And as I studied this, I thought the easiest way to do it would be just to take it by uh, the people, right, that are in this story. So we're going to look at it. What are we supposed to learn from Naomi? What are we supposed to learn from Ruth? And then what are we supposed to learn from Boaz? And then if we can, I want to challenge us to think, what can we as a congregation learn from the community in Bethlehem? Right? So these are four, four basic points. So let's look right off the bat. What are we supposed to learn from Naomi? Well, I already sort of mentioned it, right? But we see that oftentimes our questionable or um, downright bad decisions often compound, right? They form that hockey stick. Except when we make poor decisions, a hockey stick goes like that. And we're much further away than we ever thought. You know, uh, I think about it like this. Like our bad decisions often grow legs and then they like run away faster than we can catch them, right? And so I think we can empathize with Naomi. Like who here hasn't made terrible decisions that go out of hand and the consequences aren't what we predicted? Uh, But the other thing I want you to realize from Naomi is I think there is a deep sense of um, connection that people who are suffering can find with Naomi. Uh, Naomi is a, a prime example of what it means to be godly, but also go through real heartache and real suffering and real things that aren't going to change in your life. Her husband's not coming back from the dead in her lifetime, and neither are her sons. She's not going to have another kid. Nothing's going to change that. That can either break a person, or that can produce resilient faith in a person. And Naomi is the person who produces resilient faith. So here's what I would encourage you to see in Naomi is, you know, is, was it the wrong decision to move to Moab? We don't really know. Uh, the text doesn't say they sinned by moving to Moab, but it should make you wonder because of what happens next. But the other thing I want you to see in the life of Naomi is, <laughs> um, ever heard that phrase, misery loves? But sometimes that's not true, is it? Sometimes misery loves to isolate itself. Sometimes misery loves to just move to Moab for a while. And then sometimes misery, when it gets around the community of faith, it just wants to redefine who it is, 
I'm not who I am. I'm this broken person. But of course, what Naomi doesn't see in the midst of her suffering and the loss of her family, what she doesn't see is that God is still at work. God is still providentially, by his divine power, at work in ways that she can't see. One of those ways is God blesses the land of Israel with food. You know, she's toiling away in Moab, and then somebody says, well, you know, they got a bunch of food back in Israel. And she's thinking, wait, God is still at work? I didn't see him produce the food, but God's still at work behind the scene? The other way that God is at work in Naomi's life is at some point, God changed Ruth's heart. She doesn't want to worship the false gods of her culture. She doesn't want to live according to what's right in her eyes. She wants to be in line with the true God, the God of Israel. So God has actually been at work in her friends and even in her family. And then, of course, uh, deep down, the, uh, the thing that's beautiful about Naomi is that she returns. She returns from the land of Moab. Some people would be so discouraged and so like, well, my life is just you know, screwed up. It's all, it's all for naught. Might as well give in. But that's not who Naomi is. When she hears there's land in Israel, she knows where to go. She goes back to the Lord and to his land. Right? She has that resilient faith. So I don't know what you're dealing with, but um, it shouldn't be lost on us that the last year and a half has been some of the hardest times of all of our lives. And maybe some of us have made some questionable decisions in our lives. But God is still at work. He can still be found. He's still in the land. You can still leave Moab. And he's still at work even if you don't see it. The question is, are you going to see your hardship and just redefine your life by the term bitter? Or are you going to be like Naomi and persist? Isn't there that phrase, nevertheless, she persisted? Something like that. So what are we supposed to see out of Ruth? What's going on with Ruth? It's interesting in the book because Boaz and Naomi talk more than Ruth does, but maybe that's just a personality thing. You know anybody who likes to talk? And then, of course, there's some people who don't like to talk a lot. Maybe Ruth was that kind of introvert. I don't know. But Ruth, you know, what are we supposed to see out of Ruth's life? Well, the main thing I think we should see out of Ruth is she is the prime example of a courageous woman. And what I mean by courageous is not only does she choose to leave her family behind, she's courageous because her faith in the one true God leads her to go to a land not of her own, right? To go to the land of the God of Israel. And remember, this is the time of the judges. This is like not a good time to be a single woman with another single woman without really any sort of wealth or ability to protect yourself. Right? So she goes, and that becomes a theme that Boaz becomes worried about. Right? That's why Boaz says, hey, when, even when you're in Bethlehem, you need to hang out with my workers. Because if you're just by yourself, you may uh, be vulnerable to attack or mistreatment. But for Ruth, the courage sort of in her backbone is that she knows who her family is, and she knows who God is, and she's going to stick with them. She sticks with the Lord. And, you know... I think we sometimes, we get so caught up in safety. Anybody here just like hyper-concerned about safety all the time? Like you always want to be safe. You know, you always want to have everything nice and orderly. Uh, but um, one of my friends changed my life uh, a few years ago. Uh, he was a missions pastor. 
and he would always go to Baghdad, and he would, you know, preach the gospel to Muslims, and, you know, he was telling the story about how he thought he was going to get killed, and, you know, the Lord protected him, and, you know, one of these, you know, friends that were sitting around listening to the story said, wow, you have so much faith, I would never go to Baghdad to tell Muslims about Jesus, that's just crazy, and, uh, you know, typically, you know, people like pastors would be like, well, yeah, I just have great faith, so, you know, maybe you one day can be like me. But that's not what he said, you know, because, you know, he was actually like a real Christian and like loved the Lord and like stuff, you know. He was a, he was a good Christian because you know what he said? He said, here's the thing. The safest place to be, the safest place to be in your life is at the center of God's will for your life. You, you want to be safe? Follow Jesus. You want to be unsafe? Go off to Moab for a while. Try to live by your own rules. Do what's right in your own eyes. You want to be safe? Be at the center of God's will for your life. That's how we see safety. Am I following the Lord even when it's really scary? Of course, a lot of people could have talked Ruth out of going to Israel, but she knew where the Lord could be found. And she knew the safest place for her was to be closer to the Lord. Right? And of course, you know, Ruth is loyal to her family, which is just so beautiful. Uh, you know, there's such a great example of that. But the, the last thing I want you to see, I guess, out of the story of Ruth is, um, what does Ruth look like? Anybody know? Can you find it right there? How's Ruth described? What's her appearance? She's never described. Her appearance is never depicted. Boaz never says, whoa, you're a babe. Why are you marrying me? I'm ugly. Sometimes you listen to people talk about Ruth and you get this impression, you know, she's like a, I don't know, runway model and he's like Quasimodo, you know. Well, why did you pick me, honey? You know, it's like, that's so not a concern in this story. In fact, you know, what Boaz notices about her is that she's hardworking and loyal and loves the Lord. And that's what defines her. Right. Um, sometimes, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, all, all throughout time, people have sort of rearranged the books in the Old Testament. So like the Hebrew uh, original Old Testament, they've got all the books in a different order than the English Bible. And then the Septuagint has a different order. Uh, but for a lot of the different orders of the Bible, the book of Ruth would not always be placed after the book of Judges. I mean, it makes sense because, you know, it's like Judges and then Ruth begins in the time of the Judges. Right. We see why we put it together that way in the English, but a lot of times people would actually put Ruth after what book? Anybody know? They would put it after Proverbs. Because Proverbs ends not with advice to men, but to women. And in Proverbs 31, we get that eponymous Proverbs 31 woman, which says in Proverbs 31:30, charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So apparently what these early believers thought was that who is the perfect Proverbs 31 woman? Ruth the Moabite. Isn't that beautiful? And this corresponds with sort of how the Bible consistently talks to women. It says things like, don't let your adorning merely be external. You know, the braiding of your hair or gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear but let your adorning be the hidden person of your heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet soul, 
which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women used to live. And you are like them if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It's 1 Peter chapter 3. You hear what they're saying? The godly woman knows that the safest place to be in her life is following her Lord. And she doesn't fear anything that is frightening. So what are we supposed to see then from Boaz, right? Boaz. I love the name Boaz. I want to, if we ever have another kid, I want to name him Bo. I love the name Bo. Caroline says it sounds redneck, which I kind of like. But Boaz is a great model for men. Uh, so, you know, men, um, you know, 1 Corinthians says act like men. So men, stand up straight for a second with your back straight, right? Because Boaz is going to be an example for godly manhood. Uh, the first thing I want you to see about Boaz, if you look in chapter 2, is Boaz, notice how he talks to Ruth. If you go to Ruth chapter 2, Boaz answered her. He's talking to Ruth for the first time. He says, this is Ruth chapter 2, verse 11. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Uh, guys, you see what Boaz just did? He is an encourager to Ruth. He encourages her. He says, I see your character. I recognize what you've been through. And may God himself bless you for what you have done because it is praiseworthy. It's praiseworthy. Uh, Dan Allender is a, is a counselor who wrote a wonderful book I read a few years ago called Encouragement. And, uh, you know, our theme verse this year, may the God of endurance and encouragement, right? We serve a God who gives us endurance and gives us encouragement, and we are meant to embody that endurance and embody that encouragement to others, right? This is why we need the community of faith, because who are we supposed to encourage if we're not surrounded with the community of God's people? We're meant to encourage each other, and Dan Allender's his counselor up somewhere. I think he's in Seattle, maybe, and he defines encouragement this way, which I love this definition of encouragement. This would be one to write down he says, encouragement is the kind of expression that helps someone want to be a better Christian, even when life is rough. Encouragement is not merely affirmation. Encouragement is not merely empathy. Although empathy and affirming people are great when you can do it. Encouragement is the kind of expression that helps somebody want to be a better Christian, even when life is really hard. <laughs> Listen to how Boaz does this. All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been told to me and how you left your family and came to a people didn't know. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord because you have come under his wings for refuge. You hear what he's doing? He's an encourager. Follow the Lord. You have come to the Lord for refuge. May he protect you. May he bless you. Men, that's what it means to be a godly man. We are encouragers of women. 
not merely sort of in flattery or, you know, affirmation or empathy, but encouraging our sisters to follow Jesus more sincerely. It's the kind of speech that provokes, that makes them want to follow the Lord. You know what else is great about Boaz? He's really generous. Uh, this comes up in uh, Ruth chapter 2, but, you know, she takes the food but then uh, there's no sense that Boaz is interested in her at all. He's not thinking about marrying her. You know, when she proposes to him, he's totally surprised because apparently there's an age gap. But he sees her hard work, and then he goes above and beyond what she's entitled to and makes sure that she has all the food that she needs. Uh, this is exactly what the Bible depicts as godly manhood. It's not that we are conniving and we grab and we're selfish, but actually that men use their resources to bless people around them. Remember when I was suggesting to you that Proverbs 31 is kind of that godly woman? Remember that idea? Well, did you know there's a corresponding psalm? There's a, there's a psalm that corresponds to Psalm 31. It's Psalm 112. And uh, if you read Psalm 112, it's the depiction of the godly man. You know, so this is like, this should be like, I don't know, taped to the window of your truck or maybe your, you know, bathroom mirror guys. Because this is the aspirational life you should try to live. It says this. It says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So fear the Lord, guys. Number two, who greatly delights in his commandments. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. And his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. Boaz is the Psalm 112 man, just like Ruth is the Proverbs 31 woman. Guys, do you see your resources, no matter if you have this many or this many, do you see those as opportunities for you to lend to the poor and to be generous? Are you an encourager to your spouse and to your daughters and to your mothers? Are you encouraging them to follow Jesus more? Uh, this is what you were designed to do. Uh, the last thing I want to point out about Boaz, of course, is that he does not take advantage of Ruth, given the opportunity. Uh, other men would have. That's clear when you read Ruth that this is a time when guys do what's right in their own eyes. But instead, he honors her and dignifies her and marries her. He doesn't take what's not his. He does what's right. So all that to say, I hope you're starting to see sort of how Boaz is an example for men to live. And Ruth and Naomi are examples for the women. But let me just sort of finish up with a message to the community. Uh, because as much as those three are, are beautiful examples, I actually think that the community of Bethlehem is an exemplar for us. I think it is a word to speak to us, not as individuals, but actually as a congregation. Uh, because if you go back to Ruth chapter 1, it says this is all happening in the town of Bethlehem, right? And that name, Bethlehem, should stick out because it's an important small town. But here's the thing to remember about Bethlehem. It was not a major city. It was not important. It was not a cultural hotspot. It didn't produce a lot of great culture. You know, the restaurants were, meh. You know, property value, eh. 
you know, it was Bethlehem. It was a small town. You know, anyone here ever been to a town where there's not even a stoplight? It's that kind of town. But the cool thing is, and I think the message that it has to speak to us, is that even this small town, that's not really a cultural epicenter of anything, even this small little town of Bethlehem, even in a culture when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, even in a world where the judges are in charge and everybody's just doing what they want to do, this little town lives differently. And it's the kind of community that Boaz is a leader in because he's an encourager of women, because he's a protector of women, and he's generous to the poor. And he's righteous. And it's the kind of community that when people like Naomi, who have been in the far country, come home, they welcome them back. They welcome them back. That's the kind of community Bethlehem was. And of course, if you read the Bible, you'll know that of all the communities on the planet, <laughs> and of all the communities in the promised land of Israel, God could have chosen any of them to produce the Messiah. But where is Jesus born? When God shows which town gets the honor of birthing the Messiah, where is he born? He's born in Bethlehem. And you know why? I want to think it's because God remembered that a small town and a small community of faith in a land where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, they were righteous and God honored them. So what kind of community do you think we're supposed to be in our little town in a time when everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes, in a time when there may be a lot of Naomi's who have lost a lot and the decisions have compounded out of their hands and there's a lot of people like Ruth who maybe don't look or talk or sound like us, but know that there's a true God. What kind of community do you think we're supposed to be? Do you know who you are? Do you know what you're supposed to do? Friends, if you know, run to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Ruth. And Father, I pray for my brothers right now that they would be like Boaz who is like his Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for my sisters now that they would be like Naomi and Ruth, who are like their Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that our church would be like Bethlehem, a community that welcomes back Naomi, that welcomes back Ruth, and that produces Boaz's. Father, I pray that everyone in this room would know who they are and what they are meant to do about it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.